So two weeks back, I started my talk by saying that I jinxed myself. Because the previous week, I talked about how my family and I had avoided being sick, because all of us have been getting sick. Um, But by the following week, I was sick. And then my baby was sick. And then my wife was sick. So I jinxed myself. Right after I said that two weeks ago, right after I said those words into the microphone in the middle of the service at 7.02 p.m., one of you anonymously submitted the question, how did jinx work? And honestly, that seems way safer to talk about than Paul and women. So tonight we're going to do a deep dive on the history of jinx. We're going to talk about its origins and the belief behind it. We're going to talk about when the whole you owe me a Coke thing got added on to the end. And we're going to definitively answer the question, can you triple stamp a double stamp? Now, jinx, J-Y-N-X, or jinx, J-I-N-X, is traced back to a 17th century word, um, jing, J-Y-N-G, meaning a spell, like a spell that you would cast on someone. And ultimately, it's traced back to the Latin root word, inx, I-Y-N-X, which is also spelled J-Y-N-X, because as we all know, J and I in Latin are the same letter. I knew that. Did you know that? Yeah, of course. We all knew that. Uh, it the Latin inks came from the Greek name for the Rhineck bird associated with sorcery. Again, common knowledge. Not only was this bird used in casting spells and divination, but the ancient Romans and Greeks traced the bird's mythological origins to a sorceress named Inks, I-Y-N-X, who was transformed into this bird to punish her for a spell cast on the god Zeus. You tracking? Now, it turns out that this idea first appeared in an old, old wooden ship. Okay, I'm just kidding. I doubt it. I don't believe you. Uh, We're not talking about jinx, but thank you to whomever submitted that question. I really hope that you're here tonight. I wish that you hadn't submitted it anonymously because I'd love to give you a high five uh, because you definitely made me laugh. Uh, Tonight, as I said at the beginning, we're talking about something that I think anyone who has read the New Testament has questioned at some point. It's, It's a question that I've thought through a lot and one I still definitely struggle with. And so this is an amalgamation of a few submitted questions, but our focus tonight is this. I've always struggled with Paul's teachings because he seems very self-righteous, and if I dare say, full of chauvinistic superiority. How can I approach what he says about women differently? Now, if you're unsure of who Paul is, don't worry. Um, He's this guy that first shows up in the book of Acts. The book of Acts happens after the four Gospels, after Jesus has been killed and resurrected, Uh, He appears in that book as a guy named Saul, who's a devout Pharisee. Soon after Jesus' death, Saul is committed to persecuting the early church, the the first followers of Jesus. He's throwing members of the church in jail. He's even having them killed. He later has this incredible conversion experience when he has a conversation with the resurrected Jesus, and he changes his name to Paul, and he becomes the most prolific expander of the church. Uh, He becomes a missionary to the Gentiles, so all non-Jewish people. He plants churches all over the place, and he writes tons and tons of letters to churches and to individuals. Many of those letters make up most of the New Testament. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, 13 are letters attributed to Paul. Four of those letters, four of the 13, are highly contested by scholars as to whether Paul actually wrote them or not or if it was one of his students or someone writing his name. But for our purposes tonight, we're going to assume that Paul wrote everything attributed to him, including these two passages that are consistently the biggest hang-ups when it comes to Paul and the church's treatment of women. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 14, 35 through 35. 
Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Yikes. So maybe you're like me, and you grew up in churches or in families that took these verses very seriously. Um, In church growing up, I heard things like men are the head of the household and women must submit. Um, Women should not have authority over men like we just saw, so that means they can't be pastors. That means they can't be elders. Uh, In college, I was heavily influenced by pastors and authors like Mark Driscoll and John Piper and Wayne Grudem, and if you haven't heard of them, that's fine. You don't need to. Um, They wrote and spoke extensively about complementarianism. That is the belief that men are the head of the household, women's places at home, and women shouldn't teach men, so on and so forth. Uh, Those beliefs struck a chord in me when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Um, They resonated with some of the bitterness that I was harboring towards women, quote-unquote, because I have a relationship that I had with a woman um, that left me feeling incompetent and insignificant. And in my immaturity, it was easier to blame women as a whole than look at myself. So I gravitated to these things. I was raised in a culture that I believe was unintentionally and not maliciously misogynistic and patriarchal, and I bought into it. Uh, But that began to clash with experiences in my life. Uh, The first church I worked at had a number of women on staff designated as pastors, and nothing terrible happened. And actually, they were some of the best women that I've met in my life. I read a book during a series here at TNL, man, over a decade ago called The Blue Parakeet that challenged my blatant and latent sexism. Uh, The more I interacted with women in leadership in the church, the more my trust in these pastors and authors that I've been listening to started to fade. And through relationships with brilliant men and women in my life, including my mom, even though in theory she says she's a complementarian, um, (laughs) I changed my beliefs and left my sexism behind. I am... The belief that I hold to now is called egalitarianism. I believe in mutual submission, respect, and equality. Uh, My mom and I fight about this often, which is ironic because I literally, one thing that changed my mind was realizing how much my mom has taught me, how much my mom as a woman has taught me about everything in my life, but certainly about spiritual things. Um, Sometimes she hates that I say that, but I'm like, sorry, mom, you changed my mind to be wrong, I guess. Uh, So I really struggle with passages like these. Uh, Just this past week, I said to our elders during our meeting that I think Paul's basically a huge jerk. Uh, You can ask Jared. I say a lot of things about Paul that make him very uncomfortable. Um, I have a very hot and cold relationship with Paul's writing. Some of it is among the most beautiful and inspiring passages in Scripture that you will find. Some of it is among the most confusing and overcomplicated passages that you will find. I was reading a book this weekend that said Paul never saw a metaphor he didn't like, and that is 100% true. And then some of Paul's writing is just downright troubling, like the passages that we're looking at. But when I write Paul off as, as a huge jerk because of these passages, it's because I'm reading them completely devoid of their larger context. I'm reading them like we just did, as just those passages. I do the exact opposite of what I talked about doing two weeks ago. Um, when we talked about the Bible, I read these verses in a vacuum, disconnected from the cultural reality that Paul lived in, 
and disconnected from everything else that he said and did. So, let's fix that together. To begin to understand what's going on here, we have to put Paul in context. In context historically and culturally, and then in context of his larger work. Um, Women in first century Jewish Greco-Roman culture are still considered basically property. They're still always connected to and subservient to a man, whether that's their father or husband. If they don't have a father or husband, they face a massive amount of public shame. Um, Women were supposed to be unobserved in public. They were supposed to be silent and invisible. Men weren't supposed to look at or address or converse or acknowledge or even greet women in public. A Jewish oral law stated, let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not even his own wife. Which, why? (laughs) That just makes traveling with kids really hard. Um, (laughs) But it also makes Jesus' often very public interactions with women really profound and scandalous. Um, Women weren't able to fully participate in Jewish worship. Uh, They had to remain in what was called the court of women, which was like the very center of the temple was the, well, the very, very center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. We won't go into that. The next best place to be was the court of men, which only men could get into. And then outside of that was the court of women. So they weren't even allowed to fully participate in worship. Um, Women were tasked with raising children and maintaining the home which is obviously very important, but that meant that education was restricted from them. Uh, Josephus, who is a Jewish, first century Jewish historian, writes, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the man. See? Clear as day. Um, so in this light, in understanding first century Jewish Greco-Roman culture, Paul's words seem to make sense. It seems that he's fitting in with the times and the prevailing thought of the culture around him. And if we stopped here, I would still say that he's being a jerk and that he's being wrong. And I'd be wrong because we can't stop here. We need to look at Paul's words in context of everything else that he wrote and he did. Uh, Through his letters and through the book of Acts, Paul mentions 19 different women, 17 of them by name. Here they all are on screen. I'm going to butcher some of these. Apphia, Chloe, Claudia, Eunice, Edoia, sure. Julia, Junia, Lois, Lydia, Mary, Neris' sister, Nympha, Persis, Phoebe, Priscilla, Rufus's mother, who could forget, Synecdoche, Tryphena, and Tryphosa, which if I had twin daughters, I'd have a really hard time <laughs> not naming them Tryphena and Tryphosa. <clears throat> Three of these women he calls co-workers and co-ministers in the church. One of those three he specifically praises for being a great teacher. And specifically calls out when she and her husband teach a man named Apollos, who goes on to be a prominent teacher in the church. Another woman he calls an apostle. That title is reserved only for the twelve disciples and also for Paul. And he extends it to this woman. Another woman he calls a minister or a deacon of her church, which is a role of pastoral care. Another woman he meets is head of her household. She leads her house, and she opens a house church in her home and becomes Paul's benefactor, which in this day and age was a big deal. It revealed honor and respect and acknowledgement of leadership from the beneficiary. So Paul himself acknowledges this woman's leadership through accepting her as a benefactor. Paul talks about these women, 
many of whom he calls dear friends, um, many of whom he works alongside in efforts of spreading the gospel, many of whom have leadership positions in their churches, some including teaching, and he showers them with love and respect and admiration. That's some of how Paul acted towards women that we know about. Let's talk about some of the other things he wrote. You've probably heard this before. In Ephesians, Paul famously wrote, Wives, submit to your husbands. But immediately before that, like literally the sentence before that, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And right after that, he writes, husband, give yourselves up for your wives, which is another way of saying submit. Remember the cultural context. Mutual submission between husband and wife is insane. It's radically progressive. Paul also writes in Galatians 3, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in common relationship with Jesus Christ. He flat out says that male and female are equal. That doesn't at all fit with the times that Paul lived in. Paul is constantly, through other things that he writes, trying to get his readers to love each other, to submit to one another, to think of others more than themselves, to be humble, to forgive one another, to treat each other like Christ. Love and equality, and mutual submission between everyone, including women. This is what Paul writes about, and this is what Paul practices in his behavior towards women. And then also, we have these two passages about silencing women in the church. So on one hand, we have this guy who's writing these really beautiful things and treating women really progressively and is being very egalitarian in his stance towards them. And then at the same time, we have him, like, really feels harshly silencing women. What's going on here? How can he hold both of these things at the same time? If you zoom out and look at Paul as a whole, his singular focus and mission is to spread the gospel throughout the world. The primary way that he sees that happening is through the local church. The local church being a tangible expression of God's grace and of Jesus Christ to their neighbors. He sees the church's mission to be the gospel incarnate, that is reducing suffering and increasing joy. The church can only be this picture of Christ when internally the church is characterized by unity, unity achieved by each individual member's freedom in Christ being tempered by mutual submission and love for each other. Now, if you were here last week, hopefully that sounds somewhat familiar as it's the same picture of the church in practice as the one, two, three theology that Jared talked about last week. If you missed that talk, you should go listen to it. Um, Jared was talking about how we can hold divisive issues and still be unified. By the way, all last week I said divisive issues, and I caught a lot of flack for that. But I still think it's divisive, not divisive, because we say division, not division. I literally laid awake one night thinking about that. Anyway, Jared was talking about divisive issues. I'm talking about something similar. To quickly recap, we think of it like this with these levels of theological importance. That was a terrible time to make a joke. Um, One, two, three, theology. Different layers of importance. One is the gospel. This is God's message of grace and love for all. This is our non-negotiable, our true north, the thing that we all agree to and hold to. Jared last week um, said that in here we can look at the Apostles' Creed, which is just a beautiful explanation of what the gospel is. Right underneath that is that message, that gospel message being incarnate in the church, 
expressed in church unity, which drives, number one, the gospel forward. Then comes number three. This is our freedoms. This is everything that we um, can possibly believe and hold to within the church, and therefore everything that we can possibly and definitely disagree on, like baptism and communion or circumcision or gender roles or sexuality. The list is endless. What Paul continually encourages us as members of the church to do is to lay down our threes in mutual submission and love for one another so that we can take up a two, which drives forward our one. That doesn't mean that our threes aren't important. As Jared said last week, they are. It doesn't mean that we, don't, that we pretend like they don't exist. It doesn't mean that we ignore them. It doesn't mean we don't talk about them. We still talk about them. They're still important, but we put them in their proper place submitting them to our commitment to live out the gospel together, submitting them to our commitment to together join God to reduce suffering and increase joy. And that, in my opinion, is what Paul is doing here in these two troubling passages. Um, Specifically in Corinth, if you read 1 Corinthians 14 entirely, the chapter where our passage is from, you see the church's gatherings have become absolute chaos. Everyone's talking over one another. Everyone is vying uh, for the microphone, so to speak. They didn't have microphones, but you get it. Um, They're all saying that they have a word from God to share. Lots of them are trying to speak in tongues, which apparently is a language that no one can understand. And so if you were to walk into a church service, literally everyone's just screaming nonsense over top of each other. It's utter chaos, and it's causing problems in the church and the surrounding area. And apparently, the catalyst for all this unrest is a group of women. And that's not that unsurprising if you think about it. Hang on, hear me out. Hang on. Don't get ahead of me. These women have gone from basically being glorified slaves to now being equals with men. If they come from a Jewish background, they've never been allowed to be in a worship service with men. They have no idea what's going on. They also are completely, most likely, uneducated because, again, education was restricted from them. So there's lots of questions. There's lots of confusion. There's lots of understandable ignorance, and it's causing chaos. So in order to continue pushing the gospel forward through these churches in Corinth, Paul commands the women to be silent, to lay down their freedoms for the sake of church unity. At the same time, he suggests that the men, or at least the husbands who have been educated, should elevate their wives by answering any questions that their wives have, by sharing the education that they have with their wives, so that hopefully, eventually, everyone is on the same page. The churches can stay unified and can continue being compelling examples of Jesus to their unbelieving neighbors and friends. I really think that what Paul is calling them here to here is mutual submission to one another in love. That's the gospel lived out, and that's what Paul is all about. I think 1 Timothy has the same thing in view. It's a bit more tricky and confusing if you read the whole thing. It's also a letter that Paul's writing to one of his friends, so he doesn't explain everything because his friend already kind of knew what was going on. Also, imagine writing a letter to your friend and people 2,000 years later dissecting it. I would be in a lot of trouble. I bet if he knew that we would be talking about this 2,000 years later, he'd be a lot more clear. Um, I don't think Paul was saying this is for all people in all places at all times. It's not universal. He doesn't even claim it's a divine mandate. He even says, I do not permit. He doesn't say God doesn't permit. I think you have to remember, as I was very helpfully reminded this week, These are letters written to real people with real issues. We're literally reading other people's mail. Paul is responding to actual questions that are actually coming to him through real scenarios. 
So in places where women in leadership assisted in the growth of the church and and the spread of the gospel, Paul is all about it. And in two places, just two, where it was apparently disruptive and confusing, he discouraged it. A lot more could be said about that, but overall, I think, Paul unfairly gets a bad rap because of these two passages. In my opinion, in his context, he's very progressive and egalitarian towards women. And he was also, he was chiefly concerned with the health and growth of the church as the primary agent for driving forward the gospel. And he's incredibly pragmatic to that end. In both word and deed, Paul actually reflects the same posture that Jesus had toward women. He saw women, he elevated women, he partnered with women, and he empowered women. And so should we. If you are a woman here tonight, and these passages have ever been used in the past to demean you or devalue you or invalidate you or silence you or disrespect you, On behalf of the church, let me apologize to you. I am so sorry. That should have absolutely never happened to you. It was wrong, and whoever did that was wrong. You are God's beloved creation, and you have much to offer the church and the world. Sorry, I think about someone saying these things to my wife or my daughter. And I didn't think about that until I'm up here right now, so. The message of Jesus, the gospel, and really the overall message of Scripture is this. What matters most about you is not your gender, but what God says about you. And what he says about You, what he says about all of us is that he loves us so much that he doesn't allow anything to come between us. Not even the things that we continually do to reject him. The things that we do to choose death instead of life. The things that we call sin. He moves towards us, relentlessly pursuing a relationship with us. He says even though we're broken, we are loved and we are valuable and we are his. So what we believe as a church, as TNL, is summed up in something we already looked at that Paul writes in Galatians 3.28. In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in common relationship with Jesus Christ. We believe men and women are equal, which means we employ men and women here. It means that we believe women should be in positions of leadership. Right now, the three other elders who aren't me are all women, which is amazing. They are women that I am deeply indebted to, deeply grateful for, and women who I call dear friends. That's going to change next week. Well, not them being dear friends. That's not going to change next week. (laughs) Just being women is going to change next week because we're adding another elder who happens to be a man, um, who happens to be named Trevor Moore, um, which we're very excited about. uh, Because we believe both men and women should be in leadership positions. We believe women can and should teach. This last year, I was terrible at having guest teachers, um, guest teachers in general, and even worse at finding women speakers. Um, I believe that you should hear from more than just me, and those voices should include the voices of women. It's one of my goals for this year is to have more people, men and women, teach in my place. 
In all aspects of our community, women are included and women are valued. And I think Paul would be a big fan of that. And if for some reason I'm completely wrong about that, I don't care. I think he's wrong. (laughs) I hope you're able to approach these difficult passages maybe a little bit differently. Though he can come off as a misogynistic jerk, Paul was a passionate follower of Jesus. Following Jesus is an invitation into a radical way of life that Paul certainly embodied. It's a radical way of life that pushes us into uncomfortable points of conflict, sometimes with the dominant culture around us and sometimes with the culture inside the church itself. But God is after all of us. The gospel is good news for everyone. There are no second-class citizens. The gospel is a message of scandalous grace that confronts the divisions and the barriers that we've created in our hearts and our minds and our cultures to keep some lifted up and to keep others pushed down. In Christ, all of those divisions are toppled. In Christ, we are all lifted up together. Again, the most important things about us are not the things that we tend to get hung up on and the culture around us gets hung up on, like our gender. The most important defining characteristics is who God says we are and how we respond to him. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you made us more than one gender. God, I thank you for the women throughout history that have been um, dedicated to joining you to reduce suffering and increase joy. The women who, without, we would not be here today. And God, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for hard passages that take work for us to figure out. God, more than anything, thank you that you relentlessly pursue us, that you don't let anything get in the way of a relationship with us, even when we continually choose the opposite of you, even when we continually reject you. God, I pray that you would melt all of the divisions and barriers that we have put up in our hearts to keep ourselves protected and to keep others away. We love you, God. Amen.